chapter 2, 2 Corinthians chapter number 2, prayed about the service this morning and uh, trying to get the will of God, be sensitive and obedient to His direction and uh, the Lord has been dealing with my heart the last uh, couple of days uh, with a thought, began to read in the Word of God and He began to touch our heart, and so we're going to try our best to be a help to you if the Lord will be a help to us this morning, and uh, be uh, do that that He'd have us to do, and certainly desire your prayers that God would help us, and uh, just been pondering on this, and I, uh, I battle with it a little bit, I guess, you know, in our flesh, and we think a lot of things and have our opinions, and I, I know that uh, just a few weeks ago, I I tried to preach from 2 Corinthians chapter 3 uh, on a Wednesday night, and we're going to read some of those same verses. We're going to begin in chapter 2 and read down into chapter 3. And I debated, you know, and wrestled with that, but I'm glad the Lord knows what we need. And it doesn't matter, we could read the same verse every service for years and still not exhaust the help that is in the Word of God. And so I want to try this morning to uh, be obedient to the Lord Ask the Lord that He'll help us today. Second Corinthians chapter 2, let's stand together out of reverence and honor to the reading of the Word of God. Of course, we know and understand uh, that this is Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth. And of course, we've been looking in Sunday school in the first letter. And uh, Paul is writing this second letter to be a help to them. He says in Verse number 15 of chapter 1, that they might have a second benefit is why Paul is writing this letter. And I want to begin reading in verse number 1 of chapter number 2 for context's sake to try to give some background to lead us into chapter number 3. The Bible said, but I determined this with myself that I would not come again to you in heaviness. For if I make you sorry, who is he then that maketh me glad? but the same which is made sorry by me. And I wrote this same unto you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow from them of whom I ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears, not that ye should be grieved, but that ye might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. But if I, if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part, that I may not overcharge you all. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many, so that contrarywise ye ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore I beseech you that ye would confirm your love toward him, For to this end also did I write that I might know the proof of you, whether ye be obedient in all things. To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it for your sakes, forgave I it in the person of Christ. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices." Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, 
the door was open unto me of the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit, because I found not Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went from thence into Macedonia. Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ, in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one we are the savor of death unto death, and to the other the savor of life unto life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God speak we in Christ. Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or need we, as some others, epistles of commendation to you, or letters of commendation from you? Ye are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men. For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, not written with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. And such trust have we through Christ to Godward, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. I'm interested this morning if God would help me for just a few minutes and you'd pray for me. Out of chapter number 3 and verses 2 and 3, where the Apostle Paul makes this statement, Ye are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men. And in verse number 3 he says, For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, not written, or written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. I'd like to preach this morning and ask you the question that's on my heart from the Lord. What's being written of you? Now here in the scripture, Paul is troubled in his spirit. He has already dealt and spent a lot of time with the church at Corinth. We know and understand and we have covered it some in the Sunday school hour that Paul had more trouble or the church at Corinth was the most carnal church that Paul dealt with. Paul spent more time with the Corinthian believers than any other church that he ministered to. Paul here uh, seemingly in the first letter has helped them through the help of God overcome some things in their life and now he has gotten word that there's trouble again amongst the Corinthian believers. 
And the same thing in 2 Corinthians that's going on is stemming from a lot, the same problem that was going on in the first letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. They are still somewhat hung up on men and man's ability. And now there's some who have uh, blasted the reputation that Paul has as an apostle among the believers of the Corinthian church. Now we would say, and I'm sure that there probably were some who came in from outside and brought this idea or this thought or this opinion in that maybe Paul was not really an apostle of Christ. But the reality is, as we read through the scriptures, it appears by Paul's writing that the majority of the trouble that the church at Corinth was having was not from outside influence, but it was from within. There were those who are within the church at Corinth who have come up with the idea for whatever reason that Paul is not as qualified an apostle as Peter or James or John or the others. And so they began to belittle Paul's reputation among the Corinthian believers. And as they do this, they influence some of them to feel that maybe, just maybe their experience of salvation or the work of God that Paul was the minister of wasn't as important or didn't have the effect on them that they once thought it had and it began to trouble the hearts of the Corinthian people. And so Paul comes and he says there are some who have come and they have come with great words and and they have a lot to say and they have an outward reputation and they paint a real big picture and they can give you as he asked them in chapter number 3 and verse 1 he said do we need to commend ourselves again to you? Do we need to have letters written for our commendation or of you or from you? He said we're not like those. He said at the end of chapter 2 we're not as some who pervert the gospel. We're not out here trying to make a name for ourselves as others are. He said it doesn't matter what others think. It doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter how they act outwardly, what they put on, what kind of show they make. He said the reality is that there's a record that's being written and it's not written in tables of stone. It's not written by man's hand. It's not written by what we do and how we speak and how we are. But he said it is written of God upon the heart. Paul said I don't need a letter. I don't need an epistle of another man. He said you are our epistle of God and it's written by the Spirit of God and you are known and read of all men. In other words, he said, I'll let my service for God and the work God is doing in you speak for itself. He said, I'll let God speak for himself. And I began to ponder and I understand that what Paul was saying in its context was that the the Corinthian believers were his epistle. And the work that went on there was the epistle of God 
written for Paul's commendation and not that Paul was boasting or bragging. He makes that very clear. He said, we're not sufficient to do this. He said, it's God that's done this. But he said, I don't need these men to commend me to you. Look at what God is doing. That's the epistle that's being read and known of all men. What God is doing will stand when all these others go away, when their works cease, and when their efforts fail. What God has done will be known to all. I began to ponder. The Lord began to deal with my heart yesterday coming down the road about what's written about us. What is, we're living in a day where there's a whole lot of outward show. People are writing a whole lot of their self. But that's not the record that will stand. But I wonder this morning what's being written about us. That what is our epistle containing? What do men know and read of us? What kind of influence do we have in this day? What do others see in us as the people of God? As individuals? As a church, as husbands, as wives, as fathers, as mothers, as grandparents, whatever it is, whatever our relationship as a child of God, as a Christian, what is being written about us? What is our record to tell? If they could crack open our life and begin to read, if we are an epistle, and I think that's what Paul really is saying, that we all are an epistle. We've heard the word, the words, we've heard the phrase all our life, that we're the only Bible that some people will ever read. Well, what if that's true? I think that's what Paul is saying. God is working through you and testifying through you. You are an epistle that is known and read of all men. And if that is the case, what's being written about us? Now I know this morning, I knew, sitting through the Sunday school hour, I knew before I got here, I knew what was on my heart. I knew it was going to be a far different spirit and atmosphere than it was on Wednesday night, and that's okay. This is what the Lord wants this morning. And it's a very sobering, very serious thing to think about, about what's being written about us. Now, I'm not asking this morning what's being written about your husband or what's being written about your wife or what's being written about your children, but I want you to think and question within yourself and allow the Spirit of God to speak to your heart this morning about what is being written about you. If you are an epistle that is to be known and read of all men concerning the work of God, what's being written Concerning you. I began to ponder it and it was one of those times, to be honest with you, that it seemed like it wasn't coming together. And then this morning and even while we sat in the Sunday school hour, the Lord began to deal with my heart about some things. And I just want to try my best to ask you this morning and give them to you as the Lord has given to me. And I, I probably won't keep you very long, but I'm just trying to preach this morning what God's put on my heart. If we're being written about, if God is making an epistle about us, if we are an epistle, if He is recording, if our deeds and our works and our service to Him is an epistle that's being read and known of all men, what is it saying to those who are around us? 
I want to know this morning what, what's being written about you concerning the sanctuary. Now these are the things God put on my heart. Four things I think and I'll give them to you if the Lord will let me and then we'll go. What's being written about you concerning the sanctuary? Concerned about His house? Are you present? Is that written about you that you're present? I understand that there are times and circumstances when we can't be here that we're hindered by sickness, by trouble, by things beyond our control. But is there a desire in you to be present at the house of God? Is that what's being written about you? I read a quote this morning before I come to church. And it said this, I don't know the writer besides what few things I've read by him. Over the years, I don't know a lot about him, an old writer, but he said the easiest act of obedience for the child of God is coming to the house of God. It's the easiest act of obedience. And then we wonder so many times why we have so much trouble obeying all the other things when we can't even obey the easiest act of obedience in coming to the house of God. The Bible said to forsake not the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. There are a people who forsake. It is their custom. It is their manner. It is being written about them that they can take or leave the house of God. And the, the word of God, if you believe Paul to be the writer of Hebrews, Paul is exhorting the Hebrew believers to not let that be written about you, or that you can take it or leave it, but that you have a desire to be in the house of God. And so I wonder this morning about the letter, about the epistle, the record that's being written about you concerning the sanctuary. Will it write that you are present? But we must go farther than that. We are living in a generation that that's all that's preached is being present in the house of God. It's like going to school and taking the roll call and getting a check by your name and we feel like we have done our duty if we show up. But God got to deal my heart about not just about are you present, but do you participate when you come to the sanctuary? And see, we have this mindset. I'm just preaching this morning. I don't want you to get mad at me. I don't think you will, but i got to preach what's on my heart. And we think that participation is reserved for the preacher and the Sunday school teacher and the choir leader and whoever holds an office. When we come to the house of God, participation is required for all the children of God. Some people are present, but they're not there. We're there so much in these days that you can have a house full of people and two-thirds of them aren't even really there. they got their mind everywhere else and they're not participating. They're not getting help. They are not hearing from God. Oh, they're present, but their participation is lacking. That's why I preach so much and I don't want to get on the horse and ride it into the ground, but that's why we teach our children the best we can. I understand they're going to make noise. If I can't preach above a kid calling out and a baby crying, we got problems. I'm not talking about that, but we teach our children to sit up and pay attention, but we ought to be doing what we're telling them to do. Our kids notice when we're out in left field while the preacher's preaching. 
Our kids notice when it's easier for us to watch a 30-minute television program than it is for us to come to the house of God for an hour and hear what God has to say to us. And I know that's not popular preaching. And I know that steps on toes. And it steps on mine from time to time. But I'm telling you, there's a record being recorded about us. And there's a record about our sanctuary and coming to the sanctuary whether we're present and whether we participate. Human beings, we are perfect. We're perfect at one thing. We're perfect at autopilot. We can flip the switch and roll on autopilot and convince a lot of people that we're really participating. When we know and God knows deep down on the inside we're not. See, that's what Paul's saying. There's a whole lot of people that can go and make a show and be real flashy and outwardly it looks good. They have all these letters and all this recommendation and all these people. But he said, you are the epistle of the work of God. What really stands on the inside, that's what's going to be read and known of all men. What Paul's saying is, these people that come in that have all this other stuff, they may be influencing you right here. But Paul said what God's doing in you is not just influencing here in Corinth, but it's carrying over to Galatia and carrying to Ephesus and to Philippi and to Thessalonica and to other places. It is the work of God, the record of you and the service of God that is known and read of all men. I got to thinking in my own heart, man, Conviction rolled in on me. And I thought about, you know, there's a bunch of songs written about it. I was listening to one coming down the road yesterday and they, the writer, I don't know who wrote it, but the singers were singing and part of the verse says, Someday when my last line is written. And the reality is we don't like too much to think about. The fact that while we're living in our Christian life, there's a book, there's a record being written about us that'll be read by others and I wonder about the lines that are recorded in my book. One writer wrote, there is a record book for every deed I do, for every word I say, there's a record kept till the judgment day. And see, the reality is that we have failed in our church world, in our age of religion, in our age of evangelism, whatever you want to call it. We have failed to live, those of us that are really saved, as if there is going to be a judgment day. And we have failed to live as if others are reading the life that we are writing by the way that we live. Our children are reading the book we're writing. Others in the church are reading the book we're writing. Sinners that we come in contact with at our workplace are reading the book that we are writing with our life. And what does it say about us and the sanctuary? Do we have convenient Christianity? Do we come to the house of God when it's convenient for us? Do we come to the house of God when there's not something better to do? Do we have hobbies that we enjoy more? They come into the house of God and so if the weather's good or there's a, uh, a plan to do what we like to do rather than come to the house of God, we would choose that over the... Are we present in the sanctuary? 
And when we're present, do we participate in the sanctuary? Do we pray for the service? Do we pray for the preacher? I'm not preaching that because I'm the preacher. I'm preaching it because it's right. Do we invest? When we come to the house of God, when we walk through those doors, is that the first time we've given the sanctuary a thought that week? When we get up on Sunday and realize what day it is and begin to get ready, is that the first time that preparation for the sanctuary crosses our mind? Is the only preparation that we do is it just getting dressed and getting ready and putting our church clothes on and coming to the house? Is that all the preparation we do? Is that what's being recorded of us? Our children are watching. If they watch mom and daddy and they spring up on Sunday and all of a sudden they're real religious and interested in the things of God, but when Sunday night rolls around and the service comes to a close, they go back to another way of life. Is that what's being recorded about us? Our preparation, not just our participation. You're not going to participate too much if you've not prepared for the sanctuary. One writer said there'll be no public praying unless there's private praying. You can't expect to come in here and God move and bless. And I'm not saying that we're obligating God by the way we live our life, but we have the responsibility to set the atmosphere and prepare that if God wants to come by, He doesn't have to step over us to get in the house of God. What's the record recording about our Service our sanctuary. Are we present? Do we participate? Are we preparing to come to the sanctuary? Then the Lord spoke to my heart about what, what our record is about our service. How we're serving Him. Do we serve God like it's a requirement and a duty? Or do we do it because we are rejoicing? And there's a delight in getting to... That's, what, that's how the Lord spoke to my heart. He said, there's some of my people, they live all their life like it's some requirement and a duty and a drudgery to live the life of God. To serve me. They come to the house of God like it's a requirement to be here. Like it's our duty and that's all we ever see it as. Is that what's being recorded about us? And I understand sometimes that is the answer, but is the only answer that, and I don't know why I'm getting off on children, maybe because it's because uh, that they read what we're being written about so much, is the only require, only answer our children ever get about why we go to church is because we have to. Because it's Sunday. Because it's expected of us. Or because it's what we do. Is that the only answer they ever get from us? Or is there a joy? And it's not that we have to, it's that we get to come to... I understand we have bad days. All of us have bad days. But there's a great problem if every Sunday is a bad day and every Wednesday night church service is a bad day. There's a problem somewhere with your service. And it may stem deeper than your service. 
But I do know that there can be problems in your service. I do know that you can get yourself into a cycle where you have been on autopilot for so long it becomes a dread and a drudgery and a requirement and a duty and just a responsibility to come to the house of God. There was a period of my life and I don't like to say the word my ministry but you understand it's God's ministry. But there was a period of my preaching that I operated for more than one or two or three services on autopilot. And I preached out of duty and out of obligation. And it was the most miserable time in my life. And I got honest with God and got rid of some things that was between, that was taught this morning between me and God. And I said, God, if you'll give me the grace, I'll never stand and do it just because I have to. Again, if you'll help me, I want to preach like it could be the last time and with joy in my heart, with hatred for sin, and with a hope for sinners. I'm telling you, it's more than just an obligation to serve Him. There's a joy about it. Have you ever experienced the joy of serving God? Have you ever felt God flutter in your heart and you knew it was not just a job? It was not just an obligation. It was not just a requirement. But it was your great delight to serve the Almighty God. What does your record say about you? Is it a fuss and a fight on Sunday? Because you're so frustrated about having to come to the... I don't know why I'm preaching this this morning, but God does. And God's working in me and telling me how to say, the, is it a fuss and a fight because we're so pressed for time and we made no preparation, no forward thinking about it. Nothing has crossed our mind. It's just a run, run, run. Race, race, race. Rush, rush, rush. In the house of God. At the house of God. And we probably leave worse than we came. And it's not just about the sanctuary, but if your service is just a responsibility and a duty, that's how you'll deal with the sanctuary every time. Because if your service to Him is a duty, coming to the house of God will be a duty. If it's a duty for you to serve Him on Monday, it'll be a duty for you to serve Him on Sunday. And I do understand. I do understand there are mornings that we get up and we just don't feel like it. There are days we have bad days. I'm not talking, I'm talking about if it's a continual thing, cycle over and over. Monday, it's a duty. Tuesday, it's a duty. Wednesday, it's a duty. Sunday, it's going to be a duty. The next Monday, it's going to be a duty. We got to do something by the help of God to break the cycle. It's not enough. I've heard enough. I'm sick to my stomach and I say that with compassion but people saying they got a problem and admitting there's a problem but we need God to help us do something about the problem. Ain't that right? It's kind of like I'm not much about comical and I'm not trying to be funny. 
And I'm not even much about stories, but it fits so well here. And God's a bringing it to my heart. I don't even remember who the preacher was preaching the meeting. Nobody said I preached the meeting. And every night, Monday night, a woman come and bowed in the altar and I overheard her praying. God cleaned the cobwebs out of my life. Cleaned, cleaned the spider webs out of my life. The next night, did the same. Next night, did the same. Next night, did the same. He said by Thursday or Friday night, he said I wasn't doing it in arrogance. He said I just got tired of her asking for the cobwebs and the spider webs to be gone. He said, I got down beside her and he said, God, do something with the spider. That's right. We want to knock the cobwebs out on Monday and pet the spider on Tuesday and knock the cobwebs out on Tuesday and pet the spider on Wednesday. We're going to have to get honest with God and ask him to do something about the problem. Not just the results of the problem. We live in a society today that won't treat the results. That's why medication's at an all-time high. If you got a problem, go take a pill and treat the results. Don't fix the problem. That's why overdoses are so high. That's why doctors are making millions of dollars. It's because they have figured out a way to treat the results and not fix the problem. And it's bled over into spiritual things. But we need God to treat the problem, not just the results. God is not one to sweep your dust under the rug. But He wants you to deal with your problem. And He'll help you deal with your problem. But you've got to want freedom from the problem, not just freedom from the consequences of the problem. And I feel like that's why we have so many. I feel that's why we have so many false workings in the altar in salvation, after salvation, is because everybody just wants to treat the results. Nobody wants God to fix the problem. They don't want to give up their problem. They want their conscience sued. They want their skeletons tucked back in the closet. They want their death swept under the rug. They want to feel better about their self for a moment of time. And that's good enough for them. But that never is good enough for God. So I wonder this morning what's being written about us. And I said this morning, I'm asking you individually, but I'm including myself. What's being written about us in regards to our service? Is it a requirement? Is it a duty? Is it just another day in the army? Or is there rejoicing? Is there joy? Is there a delight in serving the one who saved your soul? What's being written about us? Then I want to know this morning what's being written, or God wants to know, what's being written this morning about your supplication, about your praying. And the, both, the, both words, prayer and supplicate, are in the Bible, and they are two different things, but they are linked together. Praying is our communication between us and God. Supplicating If you look up the word supplicate in its original, that's where we get our word in the English language for beg. That's when things get pretty serious. Somebody said praying is what you do when the cabinets are half empty. Supplicating is what you do when the cabinets are empty. They are similar, but they are very different. And you can't supplicate unless you're sincere. Unless it, it is a desire, you are determined. And I wonder this morning what your record says about your supplicating. 
Have you done any? If you have, have you done any lately? Have you been burdened by God so much that you have such a desire that you've been begging Him to do something in your life? Have you realized maybe your sanctuary work and your service work is not what it ought to be and you've begged, you've supplicated for God to fix the problem? What's the record? Have your children ever heard you supplicate? Have they ever heard you cry out and beg for God to do something? And it may be a need in your life. It may be for the soul. I wonder when the last time God helped me, when the last time I have supplicated for a sinner. I wonder when the last time it's been so real that God has woke us up in the middle of the night and we've seen a face or heard a name or failed a pool and we've abandoned our comfort, abandoned the covers and we have went and found us a place to supplicate and beg God to do something for somebody that's in trouble. I've experienced it a few times in my life but not nearly as often as I should. And if you've experienced it, not nearly as often as you should either. And if you've never experienced it, you can't experience it. You can't experience it. I remember a time in my life here at this church that I'd wake up in the night and wake up in the morning with a person's face. That's all I could see. It's all I could see. I remember the time when the Lord come through and saved them. Boy, it's a blessed day. And it's proof that it's not that God needs us to save a sinner. But for some reason, I can't explain it. You explain to me the mind of God. But somehow or another, He chooses to delight, uh, to allow us to play a part and let us rejoice in what happens for them. But it's not been much for me since then. Say, preacher, that's awful open. Well, it's the truth. And until we get open and honest, we're not going to have any help. It ought to be every night. The Lord ought to be able to wake me up every night. But I get so overwhelmed and so sidetracked and so pulled apart. I get so tired, so exhausted by the things of this world that it's almost impossible to wake me and stir me in the night. I don't want that on my record. I want my record to say that when I needed to supplicate, God woke me and I was willing and ready to go do whatever it is that God wanted me to do. And see, here's the thing, and I'm done. I'm done. We could preach this morning and have about your sanctuary, about your service, about your supplication, but it all boils down to one thing. What does your record say about your Savior? What priority does he have in your life? What position does he hold in your daily life? Is he number one? Number two? Number five? Or lower? What have we put before him? Is our job more important than him? Is our hobbies more important than him? 
our family more important than Him? Our finances, are they more? I understand we have trouble with all these things. But if you'll put Him first, all them other things will take care of themselves. I don't mean that all our problems are going to disappear, but He will help you take care of all those other things if He gets number one. And matter of fact, the reality is if He's not number one in your life, He's number nothing because number one is the only position that He will take. He'll not play second fiddle to anything or anybody else. It's number one or none at all. And I wonder this morning, does our record show that our Lord is number one in our life? When we wake in the morning, do we wake like the dear brother talked about the writer, that we're excited about the opportunity to get a chance to talk to God on a new day? Or do we wake up in the hustle and the bustle and forget all about God until on up in the day, if at all? What does our record say about us? What's being written about you this morning? Let's stand all over the house. I'm done.